Today in Radical Personal Finance, expert interview with Gabriel Custodiet, author of The Watchman Guide to Privacy. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insights, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I am your host, and today we have an expert interview. I've had a massive list of guests that have been wanting to get on the show, and <laughs> with the vagaries of my current lifestyle, I haven't been able to line them up, but today we're going to get started on that list. topic of privacy, digital privacy, financial privacy, lifestyle privacy, personal privacy, this is a topic that is certainly uh, of significant and I think growing interest in our modern world. I think many of us understand that the need for privacy, especially in an increasingly connected world, uh, can be significant. Uh, and yet the question is, how do you actually do it? And so today I've got Gabriel here with me to talk about this. Gabriel, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. I'm glad you're here today. Joshua, I'm I'm very glad to be here. Let's <laughs> let's do this. I have found myself recommending your book quite a lot over the last couple of months. It's come up on the public podcast. Um, the cops are coming for us. You hear them? <laughs> I hear them. Uh, it's come up on the uh, on the podcast uh, in public a couple of times, and then I've also had it come up several times with uh, with private consulting clients, etc. People who ask me, "So, Josh, I'm interested in privacy." And I'm looking for something that's a little bit uh, that that gives me kind of the the starter steps uh, to get me started. And it's it's actually hard to do. I have a few favorites, right? On the one end, I often recommend to people who've never heard of privacy. I recommend JJ Luna's book on uh, free, uh, how to be invisible. There we go. How to be invisible. I blanked on the title because it's it's so beautifully written. It's very attractive, but it's getting a little bit dated and out of it is out of date at this point on some of the techniques. Uh, I really admire what Michael Bazell has done with his work, but it's so hardcore that it's hard for me to hand a 500-page book to someone and expect them to read it. And so I love your book because you are current on all of the cutting-edge strategies, but you're writing them in an accessible way that I think is is much more useful. And so we're going to talk uh, extensively about some of the content of this book because I, I think it's a, a really worthy manual for somebody who's looking for one book. I want to begin, though, today, not by talking about techniques, but I want to ask you a question that's a burning question I have, and it's how to know how much is enough. So let me articulate it with my own personal experience. When I became interested in privacy, as I'm wont to do, I went hardcore. I went as hard into the deep end as I could. Uh, I tried on all the techniques. I did the simple ones. I did the intermediate ones. And I did the advanced ones. And I found that my life was basically unlivable. <laughs> it was so frustrating to do it all. I couldn't keep it up. And I, I had to make conscious decisions to back off of some of the hardcore techniques because it was unlivable for me personally. It was costing me uh, money. It was costing me relationships. It was costing me business. And I'll give you a practical example of, of how uh, I have how this has been important to me. Uh, a number of years ago when I got into privacy, I started moving everybody away from contacting me on my phone on my phone to contacting me on an application. 
And I set up a variety of different applications, Signal, uh, Wire, WhatsApp, even Facebook. I used various phone voice over IP services. Uh, at the time, I was really enjoying using uh, Sudo. Uh, and I had a plan all set up. And I was doing this partly for international relocation. But one of the things that happened to me when I relocated outside of the United States is bunch of my systems broke because I put in foreign SIM cards and all of a sudden pseudo stopped working because I said, oh, we're not authorized. And I found myself isolated from people. And at first I didn't realize it was a big problem. But my friends who used to, used to would have sent me a text message or used to call me now just didn't do it because they didn't know, well, do I use, how do I reach Joshua? And so I actually had to make an intentional decision to go back to kind of the normal world of having a phone number and, ha and texting people instead of sending them messages because I found that my relationships were suffering because people didn't know how to get a hold of me. So how do you think about this, this question of how much is enough as a privacy consultant? Well, Josh, I think that a lot of people who get into uh, privacy in a, in a serious way have probably encountered this scenario. I know that I have. I think for most people, this is not a concern for them. Uh, for most people, maybe listening, um, they're just finding the, the first way to get into privacy. They haven't gone off the deep end. Um, but uh, what I will say is um, for most people, you know, if, you're, if you haven't touched on privacy at all, um, I appreciate the recommendation for my book. That's definitely the place to start just to just to get your feet wet. But I think a lot of people when they get into it, they do want to be the James Bond. They want to be hardcore. Um, and your situation is a little bit different because you're you're going back and forth between countries. A SIM card will really mess you up, especially if you're using a an app like I recommend MySudo, which is really tied into um, where you are located. So MySudo is is a is a serious challenge. Although Signal and Wire and some of these others, even WhatsApp, they will work just fine. And especially work very well if you're if you're in different countries but what you do have to decide and i think it's it's a lot more important to have good relationships to have good business opportunities um, than to be very private and so some people talk about threat modeling where you sort of set your priorities who are you trying to be private from and i personally tend not to do threat modeling i feel like People should just go as far as they can, as far as they feel comfortable. But when you do feel that you are losing out on opportunities because people can't reach you, uh, because you are postponing the the uh, dental filling because you don't want to go in there and, and confront them about giving your social security number. Right. I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> of course um, not. <laughs> but you you can you you have to make a determination at that point. And what I what I will say is, if you are in that boat, just kind of. Uh, experiment a little bit with it, push it a little bit, and then and then let it go and learn from that lesson and maybe find an alternative, do a little bit better the next time. So let's begin with a discussion on digital privacy. Because while obviously there are different levels, I think most of us, some of the simplest steps that we could take that can dramatically improve our personal privacy is in the area of digital privacy. Let's say that I come to you and I'm concerned about uh, about the internet. It's not that I have anything going on. I'm just someone who's saying, well, I noticed that people are getting doxxed or I noticed that you know something could happen and my information could be made public and that could be really concerning to me. What are some of the basic steps that you think everyone should take with regard to digital privacy? Well, 
you should definitely be concerned about digital and internet privacy, even if you're not a public figure. Obviously, if you are some kind of public figure, you should be very concerned. I give examples in the introduction to my book about uh, how these days, if you apply for a job, uh, they might do a background check on you. They might check all of your social media. There's one guy who posted on Twitter a 300-page document uh, categorizing all of his social media posts by various uh, uh, fouls, basically. And suffice to say, this guy didn't get the job. So there's an endless... The 300-page document was the hiring company's analysis of him. Correct. And there are entire companies <laughs> that do these background checks. And of course, there's a new there's a new industry... Uh, called uh, open source intelligence, and they are looking for all kinds of your information that's out there on the internet, whether that's for marketing, whether that's to, to give to law enforcement. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. So number one, there are a few things you can do, and these are not very difficult. First of all, you advocate using a VPN. Definitely pay for a VPN. There are a few good ones out there. You can check out ProtonVPN. Uh, ExpressVPN is getting a little bit too big for its britches, but that's still very good. You have Molvad. You have a variety of these. What you're really looking for is something that's paid and is therefore going to be reliable and something that is not logging your information. A VPN will basically make sure that your internet service provider, whether you're at home and that's Cox or Xfinity or you're at the Starbucks uh, down the road, they will not see your uh, browsing activity. Um, and Likewise, if you go to Google or you go to some website, they are not going to uh, see a recognizable IP address, so they won't be able to build up a dossier on you. So a VPN is uh, definitely the first thing that you should do. Number two, I would say definitely get into the private messaging. Now, you don't have to funnel everybody in your life into private messaging. One thing I do is I say, Look, uh, close family, if you want to talk to me, this is where I'll be. I'll be on Signal. I will be on Wire. I will be on Session. Maybe even WhatsApp. WhatsApp have some, have some problems with it, but it's better than nothing. It's still end-to-end -end encrypted, so uh, people cannot see WhatsApp. Facebook cannot see the content of your uh, conversation and your text. Uh, but definitely get onto private messengers. These are by and large free, though, of course, you want to donate to things like Signal if you use them often. Um, so that's a, that's a big step. If you're messaging your girlfriend on uh, Facebook, just tell her, let's let's go to Signal and, and do that. So VPNs, uh, private messaging. Of course, I should have said this first, which is to do more things offline. And this is a difficult one. Most people when they want advice, they want a list of, okay, what are all the services I should be using? What should I be paying for? How can somebody else give me privacy? And that's kind of a contradiction of what privacy is entirely. Um, so you want to do fewer things online if you want privacy. Have, have fewer accounts. Go First of all, go through your accounts and see what you all have out there and then start to go in there and get rid of the ones that you don't need. Um, Tone down social media. We'll we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. Um, I use a lot of. Uh, I like to buy my books in print. I don't need uh, Amazon seeing a list of how quickly I read on Kindle, uh, and what I'm interested in, and what uh, particular pages I focus on. There's a lot of information they have on you. So I just try to do more things in person, buy more things in cash uh, in person, and to avoid, especially always online services. I prefer free and open source software, so I don't use, instead of a, an Office 365, which is Microsoft's product now, uh, where they're monitoring every keystroke, 
I just download in a LibreOffice and sure it takes there's a few different things but uh, I'm perfectly fine using LibreOffice it's a piece of software that is free and open source I can see everything that's going into it um, and it does not it's not connected to the internet at all times so just realize how much you are using the internet and whether that's through your phone or your entertainment or you just have all of these uh, even financial apps that are looking at uh, what you're spending and, and measuring. I'm an advocate of going back to some of the um, physical, uh, some of the physical methods, and just doing a evaluation of your reliance on the internet and cutting that down a little bit. So I want to go back because I think if we're going to approach this in a practical way, which is my intention. Probably the simplest place to start with privacy is publishing less. I think I don't want to gloss over what you said about social media. It's astonishing the personal details that we share uh, in a very public format. And there are things that perhaps we know about. Hey, I'm on vacation right now. For years, that has been something that thoughtful police officers have warned people against. Don't post, I'm on vacation. Don't post your vacation photos. Uh, because someone can easily track down your house and target it. Uh, I don't know that it happens that much, but it certainly does happen, and it's fairly easy for it to happen in a modern world, especially if your social media posts are in your, uh, your legal name. If you have a legal name that's John Smith, and you know that uh, you're on vacation, then I can go to your town, and if your profile says where you live, and I can go to your uh, county recorders, and I can find your address, and I know there's a pretty good chance that that house is unoccupied if you're actively posting photos when you're on vacation. Uh, so I think you can minimize output. With regard to social media, to your point, posting on social media is a, is a significant risk for most people because the post that seems innocuous to you uh, may be the post that eventually undoes your whole career. I think the best example that I like to point to of this was is Justine Sacco. Many years ago, she was the lady who was flying to Africa, and she posted uh, a poorly worded joke, but she was just making a joke, and it was intended to be a form of self-deprecating humor where she was pointing out that she was privileged, and yet the joke was badly misinterpreted. And when she was on an airline flight, her entire life unraveled because of a post she made on Twitter. And we see this again and again and again, where somebody posts something and they word it poorly, and yet it winds up backfiring on them. And so one simple strategy is post less. I personally am not particularly skilled at the use of humor or sarcasm, especially in 240 characters or 280 characters. And so I've tried to cut pull back from that because I don't do well in that format. Uh, and I think that in a modern world of social media it can actually be a competitive advantage for you to have fewer posts. Do you think if you go for a job, do you think an employer is suspicious if you don't have a social media presence? So yes, yes, they might be suspicious, uh, but they will just have to live with that. Now, if you do find that uh, your employers and you're trying to get a job are suspicious, um, you might keep your Facebook account and your social media and just pare it down. So uh, let, let's go into my, my number four point then, which is to tone down, tone down social media. Everything that you've said is, is correct. Uh, what you post on social media can cost you your job. Um, it can cost you, I, I believe, here's a, a, a statistic, 30, one third of all uh, divorce 
hearings use the word Facebook in them. So there's all kinds of reasons why you might want to tone down the social media. I'm not trying to ruin people's fun here, but what if you had a social media account and it wasn't your name, it was your initials? What if you did not make it uh, publicly available? What if you made sure that you were not tagged in your posts? What if you didn't use geolocation so people didn't know uh, exactly where you were? Uh, what if you um, decided to communicate with your followers or your friends outside of that social media on one of the private encrypted uh, messengers that we just discussed. There are all kinds of ways to tone this down. Um, and let's not forget that Facebook and a lot of these companies are using your images and they're using your text or AI and facial recognition and all these kind of things that could be used later on uh, in unsavory ways. Um, and of course, we have uh, all the stuff happening with COVID. Um, if you say X, Y, or Z, uh, that could absolutely, there's all kinds of examples we could point to, cost you your job, cost you all kinds of things. So tone down the social media. I, I'm not I'm not saying to ruin your fun by doing that, but there you can certainly do less. You don't have to have your own photo on there. Just have a fun photo of a cat or something. It doesn't have to be your face. You can interact with the people you want to interact with um, and Put and say the witty things that you want to say, uh, but in a more pared down and thoughtful way. And if you need examples of what can happen when you use social media, just go to Amazon, look at the first introduction of my book, which you can see for free. You'll get a list of many examples. Tell us your favorite story. What's the one that usually is super surprising to people? Well, here's a here's a good example. So uh, a guy, I think he's a he was a. He was a jeweler, I believe, like a jeweler rapper uh, kind of figure. He was in Miami, and he posts a photo of all of his bling spread out on his hotel uh, bed. Well, surprise, surprise, he goes out for the night, and he comes back, and his uh, room has been busted into, and all of his stuff has been taken. So, of course, thieves, unsavory people saw that he posted it. They knew he was in Miami because he said so. So it was a matter of looking at the photos, seeing where he might be, calling around to a few hotels, using a little bit of uh, social engineering, discovering where he was, and then breaking in there and, and taking, I think it was millions of dollars worth of his stuff. Um, so just one one small example of uh, of how you're not thinking about these things can come back to bite you. It pays to be thoughtful. I think that my only comment is I I pared down my social media use. When I got into privacy, I actually deleted a couple of my accounts. Um, and I regretted, uh, I regretted some of the deletions. But that was largely because I make money from my social media and it provides a valuable way for me to keep in contact with my listeners. And so I reestablished, after fully deleting several of my accounts, I reestablished several of my accounts and got them back because I realized that I needed them and I wanted them and I genuinely appreciated them for their ability to influence my business. And so my number one thing is if you're not making money with social media, then you should seriously consider just dumping it. Um, but I do understand kind of an in-between area. Uh, it's hard to say that there is a it's hard to say that there is a positive benefit for most people from social media the way that most people use it. My observation is that more people are angry. They feel the the data is pretty clear that people are angry, they're upset about the arguments that invade their life on a daily basis. 
Many people are upset. They feel less worthy. They lack self-confidence because they see other people's continual flow of peak moments. And they don't understand that those are just peak moments. Even if you know it intellectually, it feels like everyone else is sitting on a beach with a cocktail in their hand, having a great old time with all their good-looking friends. And here I am, poor little old me, dumpy old me, sitting at home alone, lonely right now. It's, uh, it's just not uh, overall productive unless you're using it uh, to make money. One thing I've never regretted doing, though, is simply deleting past history. Uh, on Twitter, this is the easiest. I run Tweet Delete, uh, and I've been on Twitter since 2008, but I have it set up various times where it just automatically deletes all tweets older than a month. You can set it where it's older than six months, older than a year. I removed uh, over a decade worth of history from Facebook back when there was a Facebook tool that allowed me to do it fairly easily. Uh, Facebook no longer allows that tool to work, uh, but they do offer more ability to archive things. Uh, I've deleted a huge amount of history from all the other ones, and that's always felt better because uh, I don't have any skeletons in my younger closet. I didn't say I didn't post racist stuff online. I didn't do anything particularly scandalous and whatnot. But still, what you realize is that the person that I was is not the person that I am. And while for my own records, it's nice to sometimes go back and say, hey, who am I now and, and, and what do I know now? Uh, I don't necessarily want to be judged by the person that I was back then. So I think that even if you do have, if you do have something that you're ashamed of in the past, get rid of it now before you're applying for something. But even not, I, I just appreciate being able to be in the moment and not being so tied to my past. Do you have any great tools for people who want to kind of simplify their previous life without actually deleting accounts all the way? Yeah, I don't know that uh, particular tools for social media come to mind. I, I'm a big proponent of just making your own list uh, and doing things manually. But <clears throat> tweet delete, that sounds like a that sounds like a good tool. Um, I was going to say when you when you say that you don't have skeletons in the closet, uh, I think that people who 10 years ago said that there were two sexes Right. Uh, might these days uh, come to regret that, and it might even be illegal um, in certain countries to yeah. uh, say that by hate speech laws. So you never know the the way uh, that the um, winds uh, w will be going. Um, and so uh, you are you are correct and and right to want to uh, keep control of that. Um, but I do want to speak to a demographic of your audience who is probably. Uh, budding entrepreneurs, people who are starting up businesses, and when they go to YouTube, when they when they listen to the podcast, they're told that they need to be on all platforms and they need to be engaged with their audience and they need to be on Facebook and Instagram and all these places. I'm not saying that's not true, uh, but in my experience, and I think this is something that you've done as well, Joshua, is if you have a very good product and you put it on enough places, um, you will you will get a following. Um, and I think that some entrepreneurs go a little bit too far. They think that they have to be everywhere, that they have to reveal uh, every part of their life, that they have to treat their audience buddy-buddy. Um, um, but I know I know people who have done well by, uh, by not advertising, by not being on social media in that kind of pronounced way. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you put your podcast on Spotify and Apple, that's most people right there. You put it on YouTube, uh, you put it, you create a Patreon account, you're probably doing pretty well. And if you have a good thing, it, it will get noticed. Um, and just, uh, uh, just some thoughts on the entrepreneurs out there who 
are told that they need to be on social media. Maybe that's not the case. Let's switch to financial privacy. You talked briefly about uh, spending privacy, which I think is some of the simplest areas to, ways to be private. Uh, first, make the case as to why somebody... <laughs> it's always easy to say, oh, I've got nothing to hide. And we are without question fully agreed that uh, saying we've got nothing to hide and actually having nothing to hide uh, are two different things. Right? The, the co- quote we were talking earlier, you said the quote, do you remember who to attribute it to? Uh, Car- Cardinal Richelieu, he says that, uh, give me six lines from the hand of the most honest of men and I will find something in them which will hang him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're right that you don't know. Well, let's, let's, let's give one example. There's a lot of Americans listening. One in 20 of you are going to spend time in jail. Uh, that's just how our justice system uh, is in this country. We incarcerate a lot of people, uh, or the United States incarcerates a lot of people. And so you have your Christmas gathering here, and you have 20 of your family in there. One of them is going to or has spent time in jail. And so the way it works is you might go to a jury, and maybe if the attorney uh, and the judge are a little bit tech savvy, they might, for example, want to subpoena your uh, your Amazon shopping list. I, I think that would be something that I would push for uh, because your Amazon shopping list tells a lot about you. Let's say that they go to the Amazon shop list and they see that you're into hardcore privacy or that you bought a Glock holster or X, Y, and Z. Now imagine how an attorney could spin that in a particular way so that an emotional jury could change their verdict uh, based on what they find. Just one example about how uh, being more careful in this case you have an Amazon account. Um, there, there are ways we can we can talk about to to hide your Amazon purchases. Of course, the best way is simply to buy more things in person, especially sensitive things. Buy things in person with cash as opposed to buying them online. But just one small example of uh, how it can cost you. And always practice COVID safety when you're doing that, right? Even oh, uh, <laughs> extra extra large masks for extra uh, social responsibility. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, how do you? Let's go. Let's talk about spending money privately. So, the simplest way is you pull out physical currency, you go to a place that has what you want, you make sure to wear your COVID mask uh, for good protection of your fellow shoppers. Uh, and of course, it has a side benefit of, of providing a little bit more privacy from all the cameras. And you simply buy it. That's obvious. But what if it's not that simple? What if there's something that's only available on Amazon? What if it's a digital product? How do you protect your privacy and buy things privately? Yeah, let, let me let me speak to cash really quickly. What what you said is true, and I think people uh, intellectually understand that, but they don't go about doing that. So if you believe in privacy and you don't want to live in a world where there are central bank digital currencies and the Federal Reserve is dictating what you can and can't purchase, or where Visa recently is uh, setting limits on the carbon emissions of particular uh, purchase, or they're talking about this, about the particular purchase you buy, then you are a big proponent of cash and you want a cash culture and you want to fight against the war on cash. So I would advocate anybody who's listening who believes in this stuff, seriously, stop the credit cards as much as you can, take out cash, uh, go to a bank that lets you that has a that has a high limit of taking out cash, stockpile some cash, be careful how you uh, how much you take with you, where you put it, hide it. Um, I have some suggestions for that in my book, and then use it. Use more cash, please, for uh, for the good of your fellow for man. The good of your fellow <laughs> man, please use more cash. Now, obviously, some things you have to buy online. 
Um, and I have some maybe more controversial chapters, sections in my book about how to acquire things for free online. Uh, we can talk about that only if you want to, Joshua. Um, you can acquire all kinds of things for free uh, online and make it up to the company in, in various ways. Um, but for that thing on Amazon or wherever that you want to buy, of course, Americans have uh, privacy.com, uh, which is one option. Now, privacy.com, very popular. It's highly recommended. The, basically, here's how this works. You set up an account with privacy.com. I'm sure the audience actually, now that I think about it, knows because, Josh, you talk about this. You set up the account. You attach your bank account. All right, so there's no privacy there. Privacy.com knows what's going on here. Um, but the merchant, in this case, does not know. So if you want to buy the poo-pourri online and have it shipped to your house, or not to your house <laughs> in this case, you can use a privacy.com debit card, which you can create on the fly. You can put whatever name you want. You can put whatever address and billing address you want, and it will, it should go through. So that's kind of how privacy.com works. It allows you to hide your personal information from the merchant, from the merchant, and as well as from your bank, because it will just say, uh, transaction from privacy.com. That's one small way, uh, and an easy way. And this is a free service because privacy.com makes their money, um, as part of the, uh, as part of the, um, card fees. So it's actually a free service. So privacy.com is a way. Use as many gift cards as you can. You can buy gift cards in cash. This is a great way to, um, get all kinds of stuff online, whether that's eBay, eBay has gift cards, uh, or Amazon. Um, and, uh, that's a, that's also a great way. Of course, if you really want your privacy, then you're going to have to create a new Amazon account to use this gift card that is not attached to some of your personal information. Let me just throw out a kind of extreme scenario here of how to buy something privately on Amazon. You would go to a public Wi-Fi spot, let's say a Starbucks, create a new Amazon account, uh, put a small gift card onto it, not a big one, a small one, uh, test that out with a very small purchase, send that to a delivery place like a Whole Foods. And this is how you train your account. Amazon's becoming a little bit more uh, cracked down about how they how they uh, view these kind of transactions. So you'll have trained your account. And at that point, if you wanted to, you could just use uh, Amazon gift cards, purchase things and have them sent to a Whole Foods. You arrive at the Whole Foods I like a little sticky note. I approach from the side. I cover the camera at the Whole Foods drop-off, and I pick up my stuff, and I'm on my way. Um, so just a couple examples. We can pivot whichever direction you want. I know that was going a little bit extreme for a second there. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because I've I've tested and done some of this stuff, and I consider myself a privacy enthusiast, but these are some of the things that I have discovered are a step too far for me based upon the benefits for my life. So I've, I've done this, uh, but I have discovered from several years of living without Amazon, I've discovered that uh, Amazon is a major quality of life improvement for me. In fact, when my wife and I were talking about moving back to the United States, we are talking about the benefits of why we would want to move back to the United States. On the top three list was Amazon because you, you, it's such an amazing you know, 
same day, next day, two days, here comes the product. It's any product in the world, shows up to my door. It's high quality. I can see the reviews. It's just fabulous. And for me and my family, we went three years and really didn't buy, well, excuse me, we bought very little on Amazon because we were traveling and didn't want to wait for the boxes, et cetera. And, but what we would do is it was such a big deal that whenever we came to the United States, we'd wind up with $1,000, $1,500 Amazon orders to pick up and go home with bulging suitcases. So what I wonder here is it, for the people who are – so there's the hardcore guys like you who will go all the way, and I believe that's the ideal. But in this case, maybe a good way to do it is for, to say to someone, think, do it at least a couple of times. Because here's what I'm trying to articulate. I have pulled back on privacy, but I'm glad that I have tested the things that I've done. And so knowing how to do it, if you need to do it, is I think better than not knowing how to do it and never having done it. So maybe for the in-between people, you might maintain most of your Amazon stuff, but it's fairly innocuous the fact that you order a certain brand of diapers for your child and that's on subscribe and save. But practice setting up something and practice ordering things, not not anything that you're actually concerned about, so that you have the skills of knowing how to do it in case the time comes when you might want to buy something else. For example, I, I think for me, the biggest thing that would be concerning if it were exposed for me personally is my library because I read a huge amount. And you could take any number of dozens and dozens of books in my library and you put those on a big screen with a, a, a lawyer and I'd be shocked. I'd be scared stiff of what he could say about Joshua. But anybody who knows Joshua knows that this is just Joshua. <laughs> so I refuse to buy books on Amazon for this reason, but I don't mind buying a lot of other stuff. So maybe there's a balance that, that someone could integrate. Yeah, and, and I, I think of... Uh Somebody who maybe the listeners are, are aware of, Doug Casey. He he recently uh, published a novel called Assassin, where he uh, where he defends that practice. So uh, of course, if you have that on your, <laughs> well, that was your after show. Drug Lord. That was after. <laughs> that drug was Lord. after the what was the first one in the series? <laughs> uh, uh, Speculating. <laughs> yes. <we> go. <laughs> so yes, there, there's. You're correct about this. So how about this? Um, I did advocate a very hardcore strategy. If you get a privacy.com account. And you, I have, I have plenty of Amazon accounts. They use a privacy.com card. Fairly simple. Uh, don't use my real name. Okay, great. Um, and you could send them either to a UPS box or to a, an Amazon drop-off location. In that scenario, what does Amazon know about you? They don't know your name. Uh, they don't know your address. They don't really know anything about you. And so uh, a subpoena could uh, draw these things together, um, but Amazon in that case doesn't know anything about you. So that's a less hardcore way uh, of going about it. Start, start small. But I agree it can be important to and fun sometimes to push this all the way. But some of this stuff just... You have to sit down, think about, okay, what does this company know about me? What do I not want them to know? And how can I get around that? Sometimes the solutions are fairly straightforward. If you know some of the right tools, privacy.com, for instance. All right. We talked about spending money. Um, what about uh, making money? What are the suggestions or thoughts you have about privately generating money? Yeah, this is a, this is a topic, of course, that this show is all about. Um, of course, if you are self-employed, then you are doing privacy correctly. Uh, we uh, were talking about uh, being employed earlier in this episode. And if you're getting a job these days, of course, you have to give your information to that company. You will have to 
Uh, give your social security number in the United States at the point of employment. I wouldn't give it before then. Uh, you might have to be part of that company's LinkedIn page. You might have to give them your photo. You might have to post on your personal account various things. You might have to use that company's equipment, uh, which is, uh, by the way, be careful about uh, mixing the, the personal and the business. Always have your your uh, business device separate if that were the case. But there's all kinds of exposing thing if you are exposing things if you are an employee. If you are self-employed, of course, you don't have to give out that information. You do business and you have a bank account uh, in a name of your creation. And that LLC or that business should be a fairly innocuous name that does not tie, uh, tie things to you. And so when you have that, you have the vehicle to acquire money privately. Now, how can you do that? Well, I would suggest going back and listening to all the episodes that uh, Joshua talks about. Uh, In my experience, I'll just kind of boil it it down. You obviously have something to offer the world uh, because you do that right now as a job. Uh, You probably also have some kind of hobby that people would be interested in knowing. Uh, So find a way to offer that service or offer that perspective uh, in a very compelling way uh, and starts to approach people, get clients, uh, get some kind of a web presence. And if you have the right work ethic uh, and you uh, follow some of the basic advice about there, out there about how to be an entrepreneur, uh, you can have more clients and not be as vulnerable to the single client uh, who is your boss when you are employed. Yeah. I think uh, that that's a key idea. Right. There's, there are diminishing returns on business privacy and privately generating income. There are some people for whom their ability to, to generate income privately is literally a matter of life and death. It's protecting them from, from people who are tracking them down. But for most of us, it's not that big of a deal. But when you combine the lifestyle benefits and you combine the, uh, when you combine the lifestyle benefits, you combine some of the career benefits, when you combine some of the security that can be had, and then you add privacy on top of it, it can be a compelling factor for many people to be able to generate money privately. And it's I, I, the, the, the thing I'm most passionate about is just simply helping people support their families. There are a lot of people who, if they couldn't generate income privately, especially through self-employment, their, their children wouldn't eat because they don't have the right papers. They don't have the right permissions. They're not the, they don't have the right you know, working documents. And so the ability to generate money privately is a big, big deal to a man's ability to feed himself and, and feed his children. And it's important for all of us to maintain that and to help encourage the ability that people have to generate income privately. Yes, for sure. I'll, I'll just uh, talk a little bit for a second about the mechanics because uh, I, I, I left that out. Let's say, for example, you have a service that you want to offer somebody. You're, you're a plumber and you quit your company and you want to be your own plumber. I, I don't know all the qualifications and certifications and, and all the rest. So maybe that's not a good example. But what you can do is create a Bitcoin wallet, for example, with Electrum, and you can give out one of the addresses to your clients and they can pay you in Bitcoin. You don't have to have a bank account in that case. Uh, there could be various reporting requirements, etc. Um, if you wanted to be in full compliance of the IRS, etc. But that's a very simple thing you can do in a matter of minutes to be able to uh, get money in the form of Bitcoin uh, from a service that you offer. So uh, things are getting increasingly easy for people to get money. All right, you have crossed, you have just crossed the magic uh, barrier <laughs> that I was going next is into 
Bitcoin. And I want to spend a good amount of time here because I think this is some of the most important area for us to focus on as far as the opportunities that are available to us and then actually practically how to do it. Uh, I'm deeply invested in this because as I see it, the biggest impediments right now to privacy in the financial space are banks and various financial institutions who, number one, are data hogs. Like they love to suck up your data uh, in order for there to be uh, giant repositories of information for more effective marketing. And while I respect the hustle, I don't want to be in it. Uh, number two is the fact that they're all spies, right? Any person, any person who is affiliated with a financial institution, any financial advisor, any banker, they're all spies. I used to be one too. We're all unpaid spies for. Uh, the federal government, uh, and that there's just this culture of a lack of privacy. Although there are properly enforced consumer financial laws, I could make some arguments as to why bank secrecy in the United States is actually pretty good. And I think those are fair arguments. It is a big is a big deal. And and when you get into the world of banking, it's as I as I concern it as I see it, it's one of the biggest issues that we face right now, where your individual transactions are compiled organized, collated for marketing purposes across various credit cards, etc. And what's more important is that your transactions themselves are being scrutinized by institutions who have no idea what's happening. If you make a transaction with the wrong person, you buy the wrong thing, you wind up on a blacklist, it's a major, major concern. So I'd like to take a few moments before we get into Bitcoin and just ask you, like, how do you see the financial space? Tell some some stories or share some of the, the depth of the, the market data that's being collected and compiled based upon the simple act of opening a bank account or swiping a credit card. Yeah, sure. So I, I think uh, most people are have a sense of, of what's going on in, in banking. Of course, post 9-11 in places like the US and consequently in, in other places, especially the uh, 14 eyes countries uh, who are, it's uh, basically a, a spy surveillance network of, of various countries. Um, and you have you have the uh, Five Eyes nations, Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States, and, and they're sharing a lot of this information. And so, um, yes, there is all kinds of information being gathered by uh, banks and financial institutions. We just saw recently in the last month, uh, in the last few months, and you've talked about this, Josh, uh, the bar being suggested to be lowered for transactions reported to the IRS. Um, I can't recall. Did that, did that, uh, what, what was the uh, conclusion it was, it to didn't that? Pass. It, right. it didn't pass. It didn't pass, but you can see it is certainly in the zeitgeist. And so here, here's the facts. Um, Anytime, well, first of all, you have your money in a bank. And I like to talk about self-sufficiency as well as privacy. Uh, you have your money in a bank, and the bank essentially uh, is the owner of that money. I don't like that. That's why I like to hold as much cash in person as I can. Um, and when I hold more cash in person, that not only gives me ownership, but it also gives me privacy because I am not sending that cash out to uh, that money out to various people and places. Now, let's talk about some of the information being gathered on you. Of course, uh, if you're using a Visa card, uh, Chase Visa card, wh whoever the company is, they're collecting all kinds of marketing data. People love to use their credit cards because they think 
that they're getting 5% back or whatever. Um, I think some of the studies show that people spend on average 10% more when they use a credit card. So I don't think in the end that you're winning uh, in that uh um, in one of the greatest marketing campaigns in, in human history, the, the credit card. Um, and they're, of course, gathering all this, all this information. Um, and Chase knows that you bought, uh, that gun at that uh, store last week. And this information is a record of your life, your interests, where you were, who you were with. And in, in the same way we talked about the jury, uh, earlier on, uh, Chase can see your uh, purchases on Amazon uh, and everything and all of your other purchases. So it is not a system that I want to be a part of. Um, I use more cash and you can use cryptocurrency, which is, I think, the uh, direction that we're going. All right. So let's talk about cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is totally secret, right? Once What, what I spend out of my Bitcoin wallet is totally secret, Right. Uh, absolutely, Josh. So if, uh, if you were to send me some, uh, Bitcoin, I could, uh, click on your wallet to see how uh, wealthy you are, uh, in terms of Bitcoin, see, uh, who else and everybody you have ever paid, uh, possibly where you were when, when you paid them, if I was a little bit more savvy. And of course the IRS can tell that and more. And all of these open source, uh, intelligence gatherers, uh, can also see a whole lot more. So Bitcoin, the idea of Bitcoin is that there's no central authority which means that everybody is the authority. And the way that works is you have a public ledger, right? The blockchain. And this documents every transaction that occurs so that the entire Bitcoin community is verifying the transaction. They are the authority. So we don't have a central authority. Okay, fantastic, great. But that also means that you can go back and analyze and study and see all of the connections, how much Bitcoin is in each wallet, all this kind of information. It's not private in that sense, but you can make it private if when somebody traces it back, it comes back to nothing. So that, obviously I'm joking, but I think that it's often misunderstood that people think that, well, because people have used Bitcoin to buy drugs and it's all private, it's actually far more public in terms of the transaction data. It's far more public than anything else. It's far more public than uh, a credit card transaction is in terms of pub publicness. But that doesn't mean that there aren't ways to, to use it privately. So let's say that I did want to interact more with Bitcoin because I, I find it uh, doesn't matter why. Let's say that I wanted to transact more with Bitcoin. What are some of the ways to acquire and use Bitcoin in a more private way to support the growth of the Bitcoin environment uh, for whatever reason is important to you? That is really the correct question and one that almost nobody asks when they get into Bitcoin. Most people, they're told to get into Bitcoin I think for the wrong reasons, because they're told that it's going up and it will never go down. And that's probably not the right reason. And so people typically say, well, yeah, get a Coinbase account or something like that. Well, the idea of Bitcoin is that there's no central authority, that you own your thing. And by going to a place like Coinbase, now Coinbase owns your Bitcoin. And they've reported all of that to the IRS and anybody else who comes with the proper government documentation. And you've seen recently in Congress in the United States, these crypto companies are bending over backward to be regulated. They would love to be regulated because they're making a lot of money and they do not believe in what I see as the essence of Bitcoin, which is to be a currency that is 
outside of any government structure. Of course, that is an existential threat. So to have private Bitcoin, okay, and we've already explained how the transactions cannot be private, but if people trace that back and they can't find a name, they can't find a Coinbase account, they can't find any information, that's a good start. So how can you do that? Well, one simple way is to visit a Bitcoin ATM. There's a great website, coinatmradar.com, coinatmradar.com. You can also try Google Maps and uh, find a Bitcoin near you. Unfortunately, most of these, or fortunately for the American audience, most of these are in the United States, uh, but these are growing by the day. Now, a Bitcoin ATM is a repository. It looks like a regular ATM. You walk up, you approach from the side and cover the screen, cover the camera, because why not? Um, and you go through the go through the prompts on the screen, and hopefully it will let you insert your cash and get Bitcoin to your wallet. Now, in order to do that, let's let's take a couple steps back. So you'll want to have a Bitcoin wallet that is not online only. That's not really online except to interact with the blockchain. The one that I recommend, a lot of people recommend, is Electrum. This is an easy wallet. You can download it right now in a few seconds. Electrum. You download Electrum. You go through the process of setting up the account. Make sure to note your seed phrase. The seed phrase is the identity of your Bitcoin. Don't lose that. Write that down somewhere. Put it in the safe. And at that point, you have your Electrum wallet. And you can receive and send Bitcoin with it. Now, when the Bitcoin ATM asks for your address, you would give it that address. Hopefully, it's accepted your cash without you giving any information. And then you it will process that transaction in about 30 minutes. Now, Bitcoin ATMs have some problems. A lot of them have know your customer, KYC, things that you have to do. Um, it will want you to scan your driver's license. Obviously, I don't advocate uh, doing that. It might want various information from you. If it asks for a name, uh, give it a name. Uh, if it asks for a phone number, there's a great website that I use sometimes. It's called freephonenum, N-U-M, freephonenum.com. And you can make use of a few different numbers that typically can uh, receive SMS text messages. And so if you were to go to the ATM and you have your phone out, you go to the website, freephonenum.com, then you can use one of those phone numbers. And hopefully, if you give them a phone number and a name, you can be on your way and uh, get your uh, Bitcoin from the ATM. I, I know I'm, I'm kind of going on and on. There are a lot of variables here. It's really not easy to get Bitcoin uh, privately. The ATM is is simply one method. And of course, the ATM is going to charge you 10, 15 percent uh, for, for your for your troubles. A few of the other ways to get Bitcoin privately, I'll just kind of cover them. And you can tell me if you want to uh, go into more detail. Of course, if you are part of some kind of community, you can go to a conference, you can buy Bitcoin in cash, uh, you can see if uh, your store uh, excuse me, you can, you could try to sell something, uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of it is simply some of this hustle that you've talked about of finding somebody who has Bitcoin and offering them, uh, something for it. There, there are some other ways to get Bitcoin privately, but those are quote unquote, the, the easiest ways. Um, if you don't want to be part of the, the Coinbase, uh, centralized, uh, KYC, uh, uh, Bitcoin route, which in my opinion cuts against the, uh, a lot of the purpose of, 
uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Why do you think people, well, first, I guess I could ask this a question. I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Do you think people should have the right to financial privacy in their affairs? Assuming that you do think that, why do you think that should be the case? Philosophically, why should you have any right to privacy with regard to your money? After all, the only reason you would want to do it is because you're a tax cheat, right? Well, uh, that is what people would say, and they would have uh, entirely missed the point. Uh, the point is there are a few things that are immoral in life. I would consider uh, stealing from somebody to be absolutely uh, immoral. Uh, hurting somebody uh, would be immoral. If you're not doing one of these very basic things, um, then you are not doing anything wrong. The government may disagree. Uh, Voltaire once said that it's uh, it's dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. That will remain to be the case. Um, but uh, financial privacy, uh, you uh, are not directly harming somebody, uh, whatever you're doing uh, with your money. Um, and so I, I see no justification uh, whatsoever for uh, banning of uh, transactions. Uh, of course, we can talk about um, where we, we can talk about uh, the banning, the criminalization, the uh, uh, justice system as it pertains to harming people physically uh, and such. But money itself is a neutral thing, just like the air we breathe, just like weapons, just like any kind of thing. It's not a. It's not an easy. Uh, an easy question to answer and i think that unfortunately well in some ways it is an easy question to answer you don't really need <laughs> i don't need to justify anything that i want to do as long as i'm not harming another person right i can do pretty much anything i want to do as long as i'm not harming another person but i think to me one of the reasons why i'm quite passionate about helping people enhance privacy privacy of communications, privacy over your life activities, privacy over your financial transactions, et cetera, is because I see it as one of the best things that you can do to minimize the worst case outcomes. There's not a single point in history that you can point to where giving a government agent more data ever did anything good. Uh, even in the short term, when you say, oh, it did something good, you go back and you look at it and you find that the biggest, I guess, it... It's a massive risk to have a repository of data. I think about it kind of like this. Do you remember the, the explosion that happened in Lebanon a couple of years ago, right? You have this giant concentration of explosive material. You are a fool if you ever put massive amounts of explosive material in one central warehouse. You're a fool. Now, there may be reasons and times at which you amass certain amounts of explosive material. You might be getting ready for a fireworks show. You might be getting ready to bomb somebody, right? There are maybe reasons and times. But in terms of a general practice, you don't put large amounts of explosive material in a central depository. And it doesn't matter whether the guards of that central depository are totally honest and totally good-hearted. Let's assume that they are. When you put the material in one place, you put all of the financial data, you put all of the current, all of the contact data, etc. You put all the explosive stuff in one place. You create an incredible target for someone else to try to attack. You create the target by making it a rich target. And so maybe everyone who's guarding the warehouse is perfectly honest and perfectly right and perfectly moral. It's still dumb to put the repository, all the information there. 
On the other hand, what do you do when you get more and more material in one place? Well, you raise the stakes, you raise the temptation for somebody to use that data. And so whether it's, uh, in this case, a government agent or a non-government agent doing it, you have to protect the data. And the only way again, the only way to protect it is through putting barriers and watertight doors through segmenting the data out properly in, in diverse institutions. And so this is the, one of the basic problems that we face in the modern world is that because of the digital connectedness, if we were to go back 100 years where you were working with a bank and you had all of your records with a local banking institution, didn't matter, right? So what? The local bank knows something of my institution. It's not that big of a deal. Yes, somebody could go and they could rob that bank and they could possibly get that data. Okay, that's fine. Um, they might get a hundred people's data or a thousand people's data, but they're not going to get millions of people's of data. But today, if a hacker goes in and accesses the Bank of America databases, that hacker gets the data for for hundred for millions of people. And then you get some goofy email from Bank of America. Oh, dear customer, we're so sorry that your data has been exposed in a data breach. We're taking actions to quickly fix this problem. And here we're going to offer you 12 months of free credit monitoring from blah, 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 blah. Right? And so you're, you're creating the temptation. And it's vastly worse when you're creating the temptation for people who have the power and authority to put you in prison, for people who have the power and authority to take your stuff, etc. And so it, it's philosophically stupid to support the centralization of data because even the most honest and moral and upright of men can be corrupted by when the temptation is too big. And so to me, that's my reason is that we live in a world where there's massive risk. And I don't particularly care for anybody to have access to your data about what about your life, your communications, because it simply creates too many opportunities for trouble. So I mean, that's not the most eloquently stated of, of arguments, but to me, I don't want a bunch of explosive material in one place. If explosive material has to be created, I want it to be separated out. And since I don't see anybody who, on the public space who's, who everyone around just wants to put more and more explosives in a giant warehouse in the center of town, I think that's unsafe. And so I just keep trying to move a little bit farther out of town. Well, uh, that's that's well said, Joshua. That's a that's a typical Joshua Sheets uh, analogy there, which I which I always appreciate. Um, and you're right. A lot of people we like to talk about monopolies, Amazon, this and that. The only monopoly in your life is government, because government is the only institution uh, which you have no you have no say in the matter. When I didn't want to use Facebook, I stopped. When I didn't want to use Google, I changed. Uh, when I didn't want to use Amazon, that's a little bit more difficult, but I can go elsewhere. Uh, that is not the case with government. If you uh, continue to go around believing that Santa Claus is real or that government is there to help people, I would encourage you to listen to one of my episodes called Privacy and Psychopaths. I think that right there might in itself uh, change your mind about uh, whether government is there for you or whether it's there for its own interest, as all organisms in the world are. Uh, and so you're right. What you've touched on is the fact that privacy and decentralization are sister terms. And if you want to have privacy in your life, and privacy ultimately is protection against any of the many threats out there, then you are going to aim for more decentralization in your life. When one broker is planning things out when one broker has all of the authority, all of the information, uh, then you don't have that. And when they get exposed, and they will get exposed, they always get exposed. 
Uh, they, there are always breaches, breaches every day. Uh, Coinbase and all these places are hacked all the time. I deal with clients just in the last few weeks. Their their money's gone from their bank accounts. Their crypto is gone from their Coinbase accounts. Uh, you have trusted to a central authority. You've given them the keys. You don't have the keys yourself. You have not made sure to possess your own finances, your own information on your own local computer or in your own house, and you are at risk of every you are at risk of all the things that follow from centralization. I would add to those companies lest we be accused of beating too hard on government. Was it five, eight years ago when the Department of Defense database was breached and basically anybody who'd ever had any kind of clearance or relationship with the Department of Defense, their information was released? And for crying out loud right now, um, I mean, hold on, Gabriel, I'm sure you're shocked. Do you recognize that they haven't yet found the whistleblower at the IRS who mailed the private data of hundreds of the wealthiest Americans to the newspaper articles? Can you can you believe they haven't yet come to the bottom of this yet? It should be America's most wanted. Somehow it's not. <laughs> Somehow it's not because it's politically convenient. And even if my guys are in control today, I know that my guys will be out of control tomorrow and I don't trust any of the guys. And so I've got to put some, some things in place. I, I want to go back to the Bitcoin question. Okay, because here is the Cash 22. First, a question. Is it possible to acquire, store, and transact Bitcoin without a cell phone? Um, yes. Yes, you can do that. Okay. Uh, it becomes a little bit more tricky. Of course, to transact in Bitcoin, you either need the address, which is a long uh, numerical alphabetical address uh, that you would give to somebody or type in, or it is often abbreviated. Most people use a QR code. Okay. And so you could, for example, uh, remember your code or write it down, uh, take a photo of your uh, QR codes uh, and ca and carry around carry them around with you on paper. Of course, you could do that. Um, is there a kind of intermediary uh, step where um, you're not, because in this scenario, you would have to go back to your computer and look at your account and, and all this kind of stuff. Is there a kind of intermediary way? Um, that's a good question. I'll have to get back to you on the reason. Well, the reason I, I lift it up, because, because in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do for most people in the privacy space is to have a private cell phone. It's not that it's not possible, right? In your book, you lay out some of the solutions. It's totally possible. It's just very difficult. And I see that, the, in my opinion, the cell phone is is the biggest privacy breach that most of us have, right? We carry around uh, a personal location device to basically everywhere we go. Virtually all of our most important information is is stored on or accessed through that device. And yet that device is not particularly secure. And when we add on to it, uh, using it for Bitcoin, then it becomes more more difficult. There are a couple of, of devices on the market I've been meaning to get and look into as far as some of the, the hardware, the, the device wallets that are trying to solve this. Uh, but it, I think it's an interesting area of uh, interesting area of focus for us. Yeah, that, that's an important question. I Can I mention the crypto mm -hmm. Go ahead, yeah. That's an important question, and uh, I, I'm I'm performing all the research to uh, have the uh, 
<laughs> have the extreme worst case scenario. Let's say you're 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 fleeing a country and and you can't bring your phone. Um, and uh, we'll, we might have more to say about that in a, in a crypto course that that we're working on. Um, and so uh, it's a good question. It's a good question because you obviously uh, the phone. We haven't even talked about phones yet. Phones are not your friend in privacy. Surprise. Um, and you don't want to be walking around with an extra phone or uh, an iPod Touch or, or something like this. An iPod Touch doesn't have um, all of the uh, the various GPS uh, chips and, and such in it like a, like a phone does. You don't want to be uh, encumbered with all that stuff. And you still want to use your Bitcoin. Of course, the easiest way is to uh, go around with your laptop and uh, pull up your Electrum wallet. Uh, not always convenient. Um, hopefully, the uh, there are people coming up with some uh, intermediary options and I'll have some more to say about that soon. Yeah. I want to add one more comment uh, because there is a good segment of the audience that agrees with your and my position. There's also a good segment of the audience that doesn't see the point. I want to add one more point. And this is why I'm so enthusiastic about trying to be involved and help to see these areas grow. Uh, you and I can easily afford to have bank accounts you and i can eat are well you and i are well served by the financial industry we have phones we have computers we have bank accounts we get low-cost banking low-cost investment low-cost transactions yeah stripe charges me a good amount of money but it's not that much in the grand scheme of things given the the convenience of it paypal it's useful etc but there is a massive massive percentage of the world that does not have access to these services and what my hope is that we can use the exciting prospects of bitcoin uh the growth i used to see as a major problem i don't see it as a major problem anymore i see it as something that uh requires consideration the devices etc just using it will help to bring the services that we take for granted to an increasing segment of the world population and that is going to help us create an exceedingly exciting future when more and more of the smartest people in the world that are currently uh, locked out because they don't have the right passport, they don't have the right government ID number, they don't have the right uh, ability to get with a certain merchant processor. As those people come into the global economy, it's just going to turbocharge the current great growth that we enjoy. And, and Bitcoin is a major component of that going forward as I see it. But unfortunately, Josh, uh, there's no accountability with Bitcoin. So what you're looking for is a one world government digital currency. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say to that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get maybe the Chinese version will be the one that will bail us out. Lovely. <laughs> Anything we've missed? Anything that you think we should cover? Um, looking through your, the table of contents here for the book. Uh we could talk about phones for a moment, if you'd like. Yeah, let's do that because that's very practical. So you you just uh, you just had a good summary of a phone. It is a uh, a device that has a camera pointing at you and at others. It has a built-in microphone. It has multiple chips that are used to pinpoint your location when the phone is working within a few meters, wherever you are in the world, bouncing off of the satellites and cell towers. Uh, this is very juicy information. It, by default, uses something called SMS text messages, which are free-floating in the air, which are easily captured with the right equipment. For example, by uh, police during protests, they have devices called stingrays. They can read all of that, all of those SMS text messages being sent. Um, your phone calls uh, can be certainly documented, especially the metadata. 
Okay, and your phone as well has a operating system that is designed to integrate all of these things and make life more convenient. So it's not your friend in privacy. Um, and what we will say with uh, phones, uh, what I'll say with phones is first, uh, learn to do more with a real computer as opposed to a, a phone. I don't use my phone for almost anything. I use my phone as it's meant to be used as a communication tool when I'm away from home and particularly using private encrypted, end-to-end -end encrypted, zero knowledge uh, messengers. We mentioned Signal, Wire. WhatsApp doesn't have all of those characteristics, but it's better than nothing. Um, and so that is what your phone is meant to do. It's not meant to be your bank account. It's not meant to... Um, well, let's put it like this. Let's let let's go back to some of the facts. The Facebook app was found in a Wall Street Journal uh, study to be communicating and getting information from various other apps that were around it in this case. Menstruation, calendar apps, uh, weather apps, all kinds of stuff. This is information that's being gathered and attached to your Facebook profile. I'm not very comfortable uh, with that kind of stuff uh, being shared, but that's just how phones work. They're highly incestuous. Um, they are designed to do this. Now, it's quite simple if you commit to it to do these things on your computer. More of these things on your computer. Get a good laptop, not a Chromebook. Get a good real laptop. You can get a cheap one. I like cheap Acer laptops, for example. A couple hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars and you're on your way. You can, instead of going to the Bank of America app, just go to the website. When you want to check the weather, you don't need an app for that. Just go to a browser and type in the uh, uh, the weather, weather.com or whatever you're searching for there. So there are, first of all, you want to do more things uh, away from your phone and on your computer um, as you can. All right, I, I've lost my train of thought. What 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 should we be talking about uh, so as regards phones? I think the first thing would be which which service provider, right? You basically have two options, Apple versus Android. So I think you need to begin there. Right. Okay. So we might, let me, let me try to do this without getting into the weeds. So um, first of all, how do you have a private phone? A private phone is a phone, first of all, that has been purchased uh, without a connection to your name. So that would be cash in this case. Um, it would be a phone that has service that is not in your name. So you could buy a prepaid SIM card and uh, re-up it with uh, gift cards or, or any other way. This is not too difficult um, to do, this kind of thing. So you uh, will have bought, purchased it privately. You will have purchased the service privately. And I realize that you can't do that in all countries. I think Nigeria, South Korea, if you get a phone, SIM card, this is highly tied to your national identity. It's difficult to get around that. Now, if you're using private messengers on your phone, you can connect to Wi-Fi and use that and communicate uh, just like normal. Of course, the benefit of phone is you have that satellite signal, the data signal, so that you can use the device when you're not near Wi-Fi. I understand that that's the goal. But in order to have the private phone, you want to acquire the SIM card uh, in cash, gift cards, whatever the case may be, uh, so that's not tied to your name. Now, you start up the phone. Is that an Android or an Apple? I don't really care. I don't, I don't differentiate a whole lot between those two because what I'm looking for is a phone that's going to do the basic stuff for me and it's not going to be doing all this other stuff. If you are downloading 100 apps, 
then you don't care about privacy. Uh, but in that case, you could go with Apple because Apple is a little bit better uh, out of the box. Um, when you create an Apple ID, um, there's a process that you'll go through. You don't want to give your real name. You want to have an email address, perhaps a ProtonMail email address uh, that is uh, new and dedicated just to this. Don't Obviously, don't reveal uh, information about yourself. You'll have to give a phone number for that Apple account. You'll just have to give your uh, phone number attached to the SIM card. They probably already know that information anyway. And so at that point, you will have an Apple device or an Android device purchased, not in your name, uh, SIM card, not in your name. Uh, and you will then have to take your prudence, your privacy prudence, uh, and apply that to what apps you download or don't download, um, the information that you give it. Be careful about permissions, uh, things of this nature. You can use your VPN on a phone. That's always wise. Um, we have things like uh, uh, Faraday bags, which block out all signals. Um, if you don't want your phone to be pinpointing your location, where you are, you can slip it in the sleeve. You obviously can't use it. Um, and so that's why uh, <laughs> that's why I kind of conclude in my chapter on phone privacy. It's, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to have a phone privacy because if the phone is working, it's pinpointing, it's identifying you by your location, by definition. Um, and so there's one way around that, uh, which we can talk about if you want. That's the MySudo um, iPod Touch version. Um, we could also talk about uh, Graphene OS, which is a, a custom software that you would have to install on your phone. Uh, these are these are more complicated things, but in for the the primer version, I would say simply start using your phone less, stop attaching as much information to it as you can, uh, and just kind of be more aware of what you're doing on your phone. Are you willing to say? Are you using? Uh, do you continue to use the iPod? Uh, Trick or using the graph a graphing phone at this point? Are you, or what are you willing to say? <laughs> Feel free to say no. I guess it's well, always hard um, to ask a privacy expert. What are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm 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 using it and testing out both. Um, and the the thing about uh, Graphene OS, Graphene OS, as I said, is a custom software you download on your computer. It strips out um, it strips out a lot of the uh, Android functionality that was previously being reported to Google. Now, when you're using the Graphene OS, it's still pinpointing your location uh, with its data trail, um, but it's not doing a whole lot else. So if you've acquired that uh, phone and SIM card privately, uh, that will do you fairly well. Now, the other option is, which you uh, referenced, Joshua, is the um, Apple iPod Touch approach. Now, this is a little bit complicated. Let me just try, try to boil it down. So you have an uh, Apple iPhone, and you have an iPod Touch. Okay, the iPod Touch is the thing, and I don't take credit for this, by the way. This is something that Michael Bazella and, and others have uh, have worked out. But the iPod Touch is for at home. Okay, the iPod Touch stays at home. Your iPad, your iPhone is what you take on you with journeys, on, your, on journeys when you're outside of the house. Uh, so when you start to approach your home, you slip your iPhone into a Faraday bag, and that does not get used anymore. You get home, you use your you use your iPod Touch, which is not calling out to uh, geolocation at all, and it doesn't have some other things that are um, uh, anyway. It it is not calling out uh, your geolocation, and you can 
connect these two devices uh, to use the same apps that you would uh, use on your iPhone. And so, for example, here's the here's the main point. There is a program called MySudo. Joshua has mentioned it before. Doesn't always work in countries uh, outside of the U.S. especially, but MySudo allows you to have up to nine phone numbers, which are not sent through your typical phone wires. It is through a data connection. You have nine phone numbers, legitimate phone numbers, and you can make your calls. You can do your SMS uh, messaging. You can do your code verification through these numbers. Um, and so that might be something you're interested in. Um, I realize I'm getting to the weeds again with yeah, this me, one. Let me just... Uh... For the, let me give the non, well, sort of the non-technical reason as to why that, that works. So if we understand what a phone is and what it is doing, you can see that it has a number of major vulner, vulnerabilities for those who care about privacy. And the number one vulnerability that a phone has, a cell phone, a normal cell phone, is it has a radio chip. That radio chip in it is communicating with local cell phone towers and it's establishing a constant connection through the local cell phone towers if your phone can reach a tower it's reporting its position it's reporting its position through triangulation for the towers and they can tell exactly where it is so now you go back and let's use an event like say if you were in washington dc on january 6 for a protest and you had your cell phone on you or if you were in downtown insert city here for a protest and you had your cell phone on you if that cell phone is on you and it is powered on it is communicating with a tower and it is creating a real-time record of your location this is for the most part for most of us doesn't matter right not going anywhere at place i shouldn't be right to go and protest is a first amendment right there's no reason why i can't assemble on the streets of my local town there's, there's no problem with it but what happens is oftentimes there are events and then frequently in this case is law enforcement law enforcement will go and they will solicit they'll request they'll subpoena the records from all the local cell phone providers and say tell us all of the phones that were in this certain place at this certain time and then continue their investigations and sometimes a protest that you went to that you thought was just a good ordinary protest for you to say, say your mind downtown kenosha wisconsin or you know downtown washington dc etc can or just a local gathering of some kind all of a sudden loops you into some stuff that you really didn't want to be involved with and can wreck your life so the first vulnerability in a cell phone is the radio chip. If a cell phone is powered on and if it has contact with a tower, it's creating a real-time location. Now, in some cases, even if the phone is powered off, if it's within contact with the tower, it's creating a real-time connection. I noticed with the most recent update from Apple on my iPhone that I had that it said, we know that Find My iPhone is going to work even if your phone is powered off. And we in the privacy community, they've been saying for a very long time, oh, look, even if your phone is off, it can still be accessed remotely. And people weren't really sure. Well, there it was right on the screen of my iPhone last week saying, Find My iPhone is still going to work uh, even if your phone is powered off, kind of a confirmation of that. The second problem is that your phone has in it um, a GPS chip. And so that GPS chip is also uh, absorbing and consuming data. Third problem is there's a wireless card. And so it's keeping a record of all the Wi-Fi networks nearby, the Bluetooth networks, etc. This is why even if you don't give Facebook authorize your Facebook app on your phone, even if you don't authorize it 
to have access to your location, it still knows exactly where you are. Even if it's not using your exact GPS chip, it's using the information from all of those networks that are around. Uh, this is why if you go into a foreign country and you want to navigate with your GPS, even if you have your phone in airplane mode with Wi-Fi and, and Bluetooth on, the phone can still figure out where it is because it has a GPS chip and it's accessing local networks and having an idea of where it is. So now when you add to these sensors that it give real-time geolocation data, you add the other things that are in a phone, you add the cameras and you add the microphone, you get a very significant vulnerability. Now, most of us are not being hunted by some, uh, by the US Marshals or by the NSA or by the Russian blah, 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 or the Chinese government. Most of us are not, but some of us are, right? Some of us have positions of power. Some of us have position, we're leaders in companies. And there are people who are paying our competitors to, to uh, going online and, and contacting a hacker and saying, hey, I'd like you to study out the competitor who's leading the local uh, you know, Fortune 500 company or who's in the, the C-suite level. I want to not find out where he is. And this data is generally publicly available. So if you're creating the data, although it's been denied many times, there's ample evidence that the big cell phone companies were sharing this data and this data was available for purchase. And so again, think here, again, most of us are not coming to the attention of law enforcement. A lot of the time you simply might have a competitor or somebody who's trying to get inside industry information. So how do you get out of all this? Well, first way is you can just say, I'm not going to carry a cell phone. I'm going to carry a CB radio. Well, that doesn't work for most people. If you had the discipline where you could simply go around with a computer, uh, you could set up a secure computer and then you could find a Wi-Fi network when you needed one and you could do that. But most of us don't want to fit a 15-inch Acer laptop running Linux in our back pocket. That doesn't really work. So what are the alternatives to this? You could, if possible, you could have some kind of device that would allow you to access information with minimal, with, with fewer of these radio chips. And these devices would be known as an iPhone or an iPad, right? An iPad mini could also work. So if you were to purchase, excuse me, I said iPhone, I meant iPod. Uh, if you were to, Apple has for many years sold the iPod Touch, which functionally works the same as the iPhone in terms of the apps that can be loaded onto it but it doesn't have a cellular card in it and it doesn't have a GPS chip. So it's automatically creating fewer records and it's automatically communicating less with the local uh, radio signals. So if you take an iPod touch or you can do the same thing with an iPad mini or an iPad that doesn't have a cellular card in it and you simply use it, you use the Wi-Fi in it and you turn on a VPN, you can access the information that you need from those applications without creating all of the metadata, all of the location data. And so what Gabriel is talking about is many people are quite sensitive about where do I sleep at night? And so they'll have the iPod touch, which allows them to be in contact at home. And then when traveling, they might use an iPhone or some people who are super hardcore will take an iPod touch, pair that with something like a, uh, uh, what's it called? The hotspot jetpack type of thing, an internet jetpack device to get internet data. And so this is one of your, if you really, if privacy were a big deal to you, you were a big shot, you had a big risk profile or something like that, then this would be one way of accessing mobile data. You would have some kind of internet uh, hotspot device. Uh, frequently, the nice thing about those is they don't have cameras on them. They don't have microphones. They don't have speakers. They don't have GPS chips. They're just on the, on the, uh, on the internet service. Also, frequently they have removable batteries. And so if you want to get them off the grid, you pop the battery off and then you pair that with something like an iPod touch or an iPad mini that doesn't have a radio, a cell phone radio chip in it. And you have a pretty good 
solution that allows you to stay connected when you want to be, but have fewer of the vulnerabilities of the constant and never-ending metadata. All I would say is I would personally never go to any kind of protest of any kind uh, and carry a cell phone in my pocket. And so if you need to have something, have information uh, on it, and again, remember, it's just because for this simple reason, my guys are in power today, but my guys won't be in power tomorrow. And so if all of a sudden my guys aren't in power anymore and I go from politically favored to politically disfavored, I got a problem. And so you want to be thoughtful about that. And this is one way of potentially doing that. A good, good summary. No, that was that was uh, great, Josh. Um, it's it's that time of the afternoon, and my coffee's running out. So <laughs> I'm glad you picked up the slack there. L- let me just uh, bring it home real quick for for the people who are may 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 be lost in the last 15 minutes. Your location. Wh- why would you want to protect your location? You mentioned a couple things. If you're involved in a protest, uh, of course, your location um, can. And if you've watched looked at the news lately, uh, the people in January 6th, their location uh, was pinpointed. They were inside uh, federal property. Okay, they there's proof right there. Or they uh, said X or, or Y uh, via SMS. I they, want to interrupt you just to add, because yeah. that's super politically charged. The Australian government is knocking on people's doors right. and asking you, have you been to a protest in violation of COVID regulations? So don't just think this is about like right-wingism in the U.S. Like all over the world, people are doing this. Continue. Uh, correct. Yes. Maybe it's, it's, it's best to use a neutral thing. And of course, during the, uh, the COVID stuff, there was all kinds of geolocation. Um, and uh, here's one example. In, in South Korea, there was, a, um, there was a man who went to a shop. Uh, now, in South Korea, they, they had an, an app. They were being, um, they were being monitored, uh, their location by their, their cell phone. And as I mentioned, in South Korea, your cell phone is uh, deeply attached to your uh, national ID. Now, this man goes to a restaurant, and uh, he tells the restaurant owner that he has um, uh, COVID. And if he doesn't give him something for free, um, he is going to... Uh, uh, Blackmail. Yes, he's going to blackmail him. Um, so uh, with COVID, of course, you can understand the importance of uh, location. But let me just cover a couple of other things. Let's say that you visit a gold shop or a gun shop. Uh, you bring your phone with you. Well, there's a, a record that you have visited those locations. Uh, in the U.S., there is a, a vice president who has uh, publicly uh, laughed at the idea that the Second Amendment cannot be overturned. Um, so don't uh, be any be any doubt about what the future might hold uh, for uh, people who have visited uh, gun shops. Um, if you're being stalked, or you're a CEO, or you're a wanted person, obviously your location is um, the difference between uh, life and death. Sometimes um, uh, Verizon and a lot of other, uh, I think probably all phone services uh, offer a marketing service. In Verizon's case, it's called Verizon Insights. And basically, they will sell the location information of their customers um, to businesses who want it. So let's say you are at a uh, Trump rally. Uh, Let's say that there are people at a Trump rally. Well, Verizon can sell the information of those people who are at the Trump rally uh, to somebody else. So you can can kind of see how uh, your your phone location can be um, a bit of a vulnerability. One more story. Um, There was a, a man riding his bike through a neighborhood one afternoon. He he rode it back and forth a couple of times. Now, he had his phone with him, and he gets a message from Google that they were going to share his... Uh, have you told this story before, Josh? No, 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 this is new All right. to me. Uh, I don't know this one. So uh, he gets a message from Google. They have shared, uh, or they're about to share uh, various information, including his location, with law enforcement. 
And so he kind of panics. What, what's going on here? Hires a lawyer, burns through savings, uh, burns through some of his uh, family's money. Um, uh, fighting this, he doesn't want to give this out. It turns out that he just had a phone with him and he had a Google app on there, which we, most of us do. And Google was noting just like his phone service, right? Google is also noting your location when you have it on your phone. And Google was aware that he was in this area. Um, law enforcement uh, will oftentimes go to Google when there's been a crime in an area, which was the case here. And this gentleman not only was in the crime scene once, but twice. And so he has to fight this. He has to defend this. He burns through his uh, family savings. Um, and just <laughs> one more reason uh, about why you might just want to uh, use your phone less, use a Faraday bag, use something like Graphene OS, uh, or use the um, iPhone and um, iPod Touch uh, strategy, which we've uh, talked about. Just just a few examples there of why your location uh, can be a serious vulnerability. And if you say, "Oh no, I you know back the blue," uh, I beg you go and spend a little time on innocenceproject.com. Go and read some of the cases that are found, and you'll see why this is a major a major concern for completely innocent law-abiding citizens. Just always remember this in the United States. You live in, the statistic you said earlier, Gabriel, one in 20. You live in the country, if you're living in the United States, you're dealing with the country that incarcerates more of its citizens than any other country in the world by a wide margin. I need to go and check and see if it's double the next one, uh, but it's by a wide margin very much more than anyone. And yet, what percentage of those uh incarcerations are justified and what percentage of them are actually of guilty people that's a very very different number so i think it's best to be prudent uh, in all affairs all right last thing gabriel do you what ideas do you have for the person who like me says gabriel listen i'm into it i think it's so cool to set the stuff up i love it I can't do it, Gabe. I can't live. I can't live this way. Like I, I can't run my business from a, a my pseudo number. Uh, I can't get that. I can't get SMS reliably from the verification on my bank account. I get I, like I can't do it as well as I'd like to do it, because having been a privacy enthusiast, you got to be committed because it's a real hassle. You have spent dozens and dozens and if not hundreds of hours of your life working out ways that work and, and fixing things when they go wrong. Do you have any ideas for how? You can just simply have everything work um, without being so committed. Uh, if not, I'll give you mine. But like, let's say that you said, all right, I don't want to have it. I can't do this all the time. It's all lost. Do I have to give up privacy? What do you think? Well, uh, of course, what I will say first is if you're doing something, it's obviously better than nothing. If you were going all the way, uh, then you would have to go very far indeed. And I, I can't say that I have... Uh, gone that far whatsoever so if you're doing something um that's great if you are just switch to linux uh a, a linux operating system so you are not giving microsoft and and possibly apple your data you have one small victory so don't be don't feel that you're a failure for uh not having gone all the way um if you've gone any distance at all uh that's a great thing um in terms of strategies for making this uh more smooth uh more efficient I don't. I don't know. I, I wish there were. Unfortunately, um, it's it's as uh, uh, Tolstoy said. Everybody uh, thinks about changing the world. No one thinks about changing themselves. 
<laughs> okay, that, 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 that doesn't quite fit what I'm saying. But um, my point being that uh, if you want to have privacy, that by definition means that you are doing everything yourself. You're doing more things yourself. You're relying on fewer and fewer uh, third parties, external services. That is difficult. That requires a lot of work. Maybe it's not worth it in the end. But I want to just have one more pitch for privacy here, which is that privacy um, can shield you from the increasingly uh, ideological uh, constraints that are placed on the internet. If you are, um, if you are not using a VPN, if you have your uh, cookies and history uh, being remembered on your browser, which I would recommend uh, not, it can change. If you're only using Google and Google search and, and YouTube, it can change your access to reality. You will be shown things that Google and whoever else wants you to see. You will not be exposed to other things. So. What we're talking here is not just about protection, which is important, but we're talking about how you have access uh, to reality, to what's really going on in the world, as opposed to what somebody, some company, some institution wants you to see. With that said, uh, Josh, uh, let me know what, what, what you're thinking about making things easier. Well, the point you're making to drive off of that, I read this really great article the other day by, I wish I could cite him. Uh, he was talking about his the way that he controls his children's internet usage. And this essay, I'll make this, I thought this made this point brilliantly. Many times as parents, you feel a little bit guilty controlling and monitoring your children's usage. Now, if you're a parent and you don't know every single thing that your child is doing on the internet, you're a fool and you're going to reap what you are, you know, you're going to reap major problems, but you need to fix that first of all. And there are some good tools for doing that. But he was talking about this guilt. I know that was a strong statement, but please, I beg you, it's very, very important that with your children, I hope this, what I'm about to say, gives you reason to do it. He was talking about this guilt that sometimes you have a feel as a parent of, of watching your children's activity and monitoring them. And you say, well, this flies right in the face of privacy. What about their privacy? The point he made, which I thought was so well put, he said, if you think that you have privacy on the internet, you're living in a, like a world from 1996, Right? You have no privacy on the internet. And he says, you're, you're behaving foolishly because you think that you're on a free and open internet where you have privacy. You are, you are the one being manipulated step by step for every single thing that you're doing. You're the one who's being, who, every, everything that you do online is being controlled, monitored, watched, absorbed, purchased. Every single thing that you're doing online is manipulated. And you, are falling prey to a nonstop flood of algorithms that are seeking to control your behavior systematically. And his point as a parent uh, was that by monitoring my children's activities online and by the fact that they know that I'm monitoring them, I'm teaching them how to live in the world that we live in, which is a world of constant and never-ending monitoring. And I thought it was, I didn't say it as clearly and eloquently as he did, but I thought that's a really powerful point. I immediately sent it to all my friends and family. I was like, listen, this is, this is a very important point because I have a bias for privacy and my children have no privacy with regard to their online activities. And, and they won't for a very, very long time. And I thought, how do you reconcile this? And I thought, this is the rec this is the way that you reconcile it. Can you be private on the internet? Uh, for a few minutes, if you're a techno wizard and you know how to set up, uh, you know, a sandboxed uh, virtual machine running through multiple layers of VPNs, that's everything like you can do it. It is possible, but it requires a vastly high level of technical knowledge. 
And so most of us aren't going to reach that level or, or live that way on a daily basis. I think your point, Gabriel, about using clean browsers is really valuable. For many years, uh, I have used a clean browser to simply change the browser settings. If you just set Firefox every time you close, eliminate history, eliminate cookies, just scrub, scrub the browser, that in and of itself gives you a very different experience on the internet because you don't wind up in a side in, in a silo. You don't wind up just constantly having feedback uh, uh, of the an echo chamber. And so, if you go on YouTube and every time you see just native naked YouTube without your being signed in, it gives you a vastly different experience than your own personally trained, you know, algorithmically enhanced uh, personal account. So, I guess what I was saying was, I believe that. The audience of Radical Personal Finance tends to be quite wealthy and quite well-educated and quite busy. And I think that privacy, you are exactly right, that there are levels of privacy that are possible uh, and, that are, and that every level is good, right? Just putting a VPN, putting it on your phone, putting it on your computer, running it, it's great. It gives you a, a major upgrade. Uh, being thoughtful about the apps that are on your phone gives you a good upgrade. Being thoughtful about where you go on the internet and how you go, good, good upgrades. My answer is you can use money to solve some of this. We didn't talk, and for the sake of time, I don't want to get into things like location privacy. But after doing all kinds of stuff over the years on location privacy, I became convinced that if you can afford it, the best way to have location privacy is just simply to have an apartment where you live that you don't personally set foot in much. And looking like a normal person is a big deal. For phone privacy, right? One of the best things you can do is just have a traditional phone number, a traditional thing that's useful for two-factor authentication and verification, et cetera. And so I spent, I have spent a lot of time and a lot of money using many of the solutions and found out the limits as to where they work and don't work. Similarly, like with a business. I love my pseudo. I think it's great. I would never run a business on it. It's gotten better, right? But I would never run a business on it. It's not reliable enough. So if I'm running a business, I'm going to have a phone that's dedicated to that business. But knowing how to leave that phone behind, knowing how to put the phone in a Faraday cage, knowing how to use the phone for what it's just to be used for. Maybe I teach people, right? Having a backup set, right? Having, you may not use a private phone every day all the time, but knowing that you have a privately purchased phone that's clean, that's set up, that's ready to go, that has service, and that's sitting in a Faraday cage, you know, a Faraday bag in your buddy's gun safe or in your storage unit or at your office or something like that. So if you need that secondary form of communication, these are powerful ways to do it. And so this is, I've had this kind of tenuous relationship with privacy where I'm totally into it because I'm into like weird, hardcore stuff like that. But I find that a lot of the techniques are difficult. But yet I'm really glad I'm into it because having it as a backup option has been really powerful. And that's kind of my point is that uh, if you're a guy who's making a good income and you don't have a private phone, at least as a backup sitting somewhere, I think you're, you're not planning ahead enough, right? If you don't have a place you can go and know how to go to a place where you could fall off the grid, if you all of a sudden were on the front page of the newspaper, I don't think you're planning ahead well enough in the modern world. That's that's all well said. Let, let me just say one final thing here, which is slight tangent, but I, I want to make sure to say it. And that is for people who think we've gone off the deep end here. Let me get let me give you something very practical for the the wealthy listener out there. Let's say that you have your bank account and you have X amount of money in there and you have your Coinbase account and you have your Fidelity and Vanguard accounts and you have X amount of uh, stock in there. The easiest thing you can do to protect that 
is to have two-factor authentication. Uh, I didn't mention this, I should have. Joshua referenced it just a minute ago. Go into your important accounts, go to the settings, set up two-factor authentication. That is going to force you, whenever you log in, to provide a code that can be sent to your phone uh, or through an app like Authy. And I, I recommend that you consider an app called Authy. This is an easy way to make sure that you're not part of some of my recent clients uh, who the statistic of $6 trillion of cybercrime per year, which is growing, which my clients recently have contributed to because they didn't have two-factor authentication in their important accounts because they were using a Yahoo email address which they didn't change the password and Yahoo accounts were breached a few years ago. So there's the keys to the kingdom right there. They lose all of their uh, Coinbase money just like that and you can't recover cryptocurrency. So have the two-factor authentication. Change your email address to one that um, is not hackable. For example, ProtonMail. They do not have the uh, credentials of their users so they cannot theoretically have a breach so go create you a Proton Mail email account. Change your important uh, financial accounts to that. Make sure you don't forget the password because you will be locked out for eternity. Set up your two-factor authentication and you will have just done your uh, financial future a uh, huge benefit by making just those steps. Absolutely. So I want to plug your book, uh, The Watchman Guide to Privacy, Reclaim Your Digital Financial and Lifestyle Freedom. This book is fantastic. Uh, I strongly recommend it. Uh, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a really good. And Gabriel, you're very good at organizing information and you're very good at laying out kind of the philosophical underpinnings of your position and giving a good introduction to people, but also giving enough tidbits of how you can go deep in this book. I, I love this book. I think it's great. Uh, you're also doing a podcast. Yes, that is simply the Watchmen Privacy Podcast, available pretty much anywhere, including YouTube, etc. So Watchmen Privacy Podcast, and are you additionally maintaining a blog, or is it most of your writing in this book? Um, you can, if you want to track me down, get the book, check out my podcast. You can check out my website, watchmenprivacy.com. I have a newsletter. I hope to be doing some important things with that in the upcoming year. So those are the three ways. And then Gabriel and I are working on a project, which we hope to be announcing the details of very soon, uh, about Bitcoin, Bitcoin privacy, et cetera. Uh, my, uh, hopefully that'll be a Q1 uh, 2022 launch uh, that was supposed to be Q4, but <laughs> I messed that up. And so Q1 2022 is the plan for a pretty cool uh, Bitcoin collaborative project. Gabriel, thank you for coming. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you.